am third generation San Franciscan. Grew up here in the Richmond district. My grandparents came from Japan and they bought this house with my parents. With the exception of college and grad school, I've lived only here. I grew up in church. Very kind of pretty much went every Sunday, went to Sunday school. If you were to ask me what church was at that point in my life, I think I would have said it's just this great community of people. And it wasn't until I went to grad school that um, I actually got challenged in my faith. I was in a small group and the small group leader asked me something, what my faith meant. And I don't know what kind of answer I gave him. It was probably something like, it's this nice community of people. And I assumed I was Christian. And he told me something like, I don't think you are. I was a little teed off at him and I, I was like, kind of like, what do you mean? Like I've grown up in the church, I've been active in the church. So he really kind of helped me to understand that whole idea of really needing Jesus as your savior to be in that relationship with God. My mom probably first got sick when I was in grammar school. Her diagnosis was idiopathic cardiomyopathy meaning oh, just a weak heart muscle. And I was in junior high school when she passed away. When I was in high school, my brother was diagnosed with the same heart problem that my mom had. He liked to play tennis a lot, and so he ended up having basically like a heart attack on the court. At the time he passed away, I was a sophomore in college. It's interesting, because I was talking with a friend of mine lately, and she said, don't you get lonely? She really thought about it in terms of family, knowing that I had lost my mom in junior high, my brother when I was in college, and then my dad maybe seven or eight years ago. I think that I've learned, you do have that genetic family that you're born into, and that's one source of family, but there's also family that you build, your spiritual family. Like you intentionally spend time with people, you intentionally are involved in people's lives, and that's another form of family. I started going to a church when I was in college, and it was out in the East Bay because I was at Berkeley. And in the long run, I was there for 15 years. I was meeting a lot of people that I wanted to bring to church. I had a pretty long list, and it was hard to bring people all the way over there. What I was looking for is a church where those people who are on that list, where they would feel comfortable going. So really, when I was looking for a church, I wasn't looking for me. I was looking for someplace where I could bring people. And in the end, that's what I found in Cornerstone. I serve because it comes naturally. It, feels, it would feel really weird not to serve. It's not a have to. I guess it's I feel I get to, kind of like your family. Like if you're at home and you're eating dinner, hopefully you do something. You help put away your dirty dish or something. And if you don't play your part, then it's kind of like you're a guest or you're a visitor. In this house, we have had the filming of a music video, an act of an Easter play, several rehearsals for two or three plays, I think, and then um, small group. I have small group. But really, that's not a bother. It's one, another one of those I get to, so it's a pleasure to be able to do that because if the video that was filmed here ends up helping someone and they go on to help someone else or maybe they forward that video to someone else, 
I'm not directly talking with those people, but just the fact that I opened up my house to have the video filmed here, I can have that effect and that can go on. My family history on my mom's side is not great for heart conditions. You know, when you have that kind of genetics running in your family, you can't always count on tomorrow. And I appreciate that. I think it's really helped me to, to count each day as a gift. Try to take a big trip every year. Um, this past year to Ecuador and the Galapagos and climbing up to 5,000 meters and swimming with penguins. In the day-to-day, -day, I just try to do the most I can with each day that I'm given. Not put things aside for later because you don't know that you have later. There's a lot of people who chase a lot of things in life. And I would say, if you really got all those things, is that it? Would you be satisfied or would it come up empty? Yeah, I work in a hospital. I work with people who are really ill or maybe looking towards the end of life. And when they're reflecting, they don't say, oh, I wish I bought that dining room table or, oh, I should have gotten two more pairs of those comfortable shoes. They say, oh, I, I wish I spent more time with my family, or oh, I wish I spent more time with these people. How I want to spend my time day to day, people are always going to be the priority. The someone is always going to be more important than the something. So even if, you know, what I can do to help people in the day to day, I mean, life is life. At some point, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. But if I've left that with some people that go on to do that with more people, then all the better, all the better. I think all along I always thought I was a good person. It was me. I get the credit for it because I'm a good person. But now understanding that God is in my life and God is really the under, <laughs> underlying strength and reason why I care about people. And, and do things and want to help other people. It's a whole different reason why. It's not me, it's God. My name is Chris Ishii, and this is how I'm building my life. amazing uh, part of our community and uh, I hope we have appreciated uh, this uh, fall as we've been talking about building a life getting also some snapshots of people who are building their lives in God and one of the things we were you know wanting to do was show that uh, you know there are, all of us are walking through things and uh, all of us have areas in our lives that not everybody knows about but they've had a tremendous impact on us and part of learning how to walk with the Lord is learning how to bring him into those places. And someone like Chris is just a great example of how to do that, you know, in my opinion, in a way that is, she's extraordinarily optimistic, 
Um, she's not bitter. We were talking about it. She's an example of someone who didn't get bitter. She got better. And we always talk about how important it is to, to walk through things, stay optimistic and joy-filled with the Lord. And she's got a vibrancy about life. It just really is a great example. And you know what? There are examples like this all over. And it's part of why we do what we do. You know, there's a couple of things she was saying. She was talking about how at the end of the day, um, nobody really is talking about, oh, can I acquire one more thing, you know, or well, about the things that we've purchased in life. Those things don't matter that much because when it's all said and done, they're left behind. That's what Jesus said, too. He said, remember what's most important. And in many ways, it's what we're doing, at least in part right now to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love people. And we like to say, let's start with the people closest to us because a lot of times where that's where love breaks down and needs to show up the most. She, again, was reminding us of other things, too. She said something that stood out to me because it connects, connects with what I think is probably, if not the main purpose, certainly one of them, for why our church even exists. She said something about how she, when she was thinking about church, she was wanting to to be at a church where she, she could not just go for herself, but it was in her mind to be able to bring people, bring someone with her. And uh, that's a big part of the reason we do what we do. It's predicated upon the conviction that we who have come to follow Jesus, and I know we're all at different stages. Some have been following him for a long time. Others of us, not so long. Others of us, maybe we aren't even quite there yet. We're right on the edge. We're getting real close, though. That the idea is, though, that when we have a life with God and, and a real relationship with the Lord, we want to share that with other people. And so the church becomes a partner with um, that sharing that hopefully is taking place in different ways, in authentic and honest ways, on our jobs and our neighbors, with our family, friends. You know, all of these things have great meaning. It's, by the way, the reason why we are so committed to the um, second uh, uh, campus. I know that a lot of our focus in the next couple of weeks is going to be on Christmas, as it should be. But we also, I think all of us are aware, I know not everyone, but most of us are aware that we've got this really big deal coming for us as a church. The whole Isaiah 542 project, which has to do with the planning of our second campus on the west side of the city by Lake Merced, is a huge deal for us coming up in January. And it's not that far away, it's around the bend. And we're all excited about it, but what it's meant is that, and a lot of you have already done this, that there are these tremendous opportunities to get involved and to serve and to be a part of our church and uh, in, a, in a way that even goes beyond just attending. And, and there are real issues, real needs, and real opportunities. Because not only are we having a group of people who have made a decision to help plant that church and, and are committing for a good year to just help it get off, off and running, and, and there's a tremendous amount of energy around that, and, and people have been signing up and letting us know that's what, that was, that's what they want to do. But we've also had a lot of people tell us that they're willing to step in here on the mission campus where we're still running um, all, you know, all our services here on the weekend and fill in the gaps as many of our people are moving out to help us plant that. So please pray. Please be aware that there are legitimate needs for service and opportunities to get involved in community at an even deeper level. A lot of what Chris modeled is what we're asking others to consider doing. Even the way she talked about small group and the value of having people become a kind of part of a spiritual family together as well. She was acknowledging it's not a replacement for our, our natural family but it's a different kind of family, and it can make a huge difference in our life with God. Now, we've been talking about building a life, and uh, we've not just been talking about something that happened a long time ago in the Bible, you know, 450 years before the birth of Christ, the story of Nehemiah's building of this wall occurs. We've been spending a lot of time looking at it, 
but it's not, the value for us is not just about the value of looking at a historical event that took place in the Old Testament that is good to know as a historical piece, and it has value for that. But we've been trying to make the case that it actually has a lot of value and also something that we can use to apply to our own lives because God is also trying to build our life with him. And we've been trying to take principles from Nehemiah and apply them to our own life with the Lord and talk frankly and earnestly about how to build things with God. And so, again, as we come to Nehemiah, we are remembering that his great passion was to help his people have a wall rebuilt. So the book is about the rebuilding of a wall. And that wall, which meant everything to them, because a city without walls in the ancient world was a city that lived in perpetual vulnerability. It meant that you could not secure your assets, that you were always vulnerable to being um, raided. Uh, In their case, they were under the thumb of powerful forces around them. Nehemiah had a a burden to see that changed. Again, for 140 years, the walls had been destroyed and in rubble. When Nehemiah comes to address the situation, he's living in Persia. He has a burden for his people in Jerusalem. He starts on a journey that brings him to a place that we're going to be looking at right now. Because as we come to the sixth chapter, and again, what I, we've been doing this now for 12 weeks. It's our 13th week. Uh, next week, we conclude the Nehemiah series, and we have a message that sort of bridges Nehemiah and Christmas. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that. But this piece is very important because the sixth chapter of Nehemiah is a marking point. It marks the completion of the project, almost. There are still a couple of things that need to be done. When we come to the first verse of of the sixth chapter, we see that Nehemiah tells us that the wall actually had been completed, which was an amazing feat, except he says there were still some gates that needed to be hung on the doors, as, as you know, the doors and the gates still needed to be hung. So he says, we're almost there in this sixth chapter. Now, you don't understand what a significant thing that was. There had been, I mentioned this, 140 years or so around where nothing had happened. They had lived with rubble. They had lived with that brokenness. That means a few generations had passed just sort of conceding to the situation. And then all of a sudden, Nehemiah comes, and as a catalyst, as a change agent, he begins to to encourage them all to step forward and change the equation. And that's how the wall starts to get built. And I was trying to make the case that it would not be unlike some of us who maybe we have had areas in our lives where there has been such a level of defeat, such a level of devastation, if, if we will, such a level of, of, of hopelessness and almost shame that there, there have been areas of our lives that we've almost conceded as this is the way it will always be. And then to have God come into our lives in Christ and begin to witness and see before our very eyes the Lord build something new out of that rubble. A testimony of the grace of God. Areas of our lives that we had written off as being almost hopeless to see them rebuilt into something healthy and capable of sustaining blessing. It, it, honestly, it'd be almost like, a, it has been for some of us like a small miracle. The miracle of, of God. And it can happen for anybody who's willing, the Lord will come and help us build a life of health and blessing. I believe that with all my heart, that even the areas of struggle, and we're going to talk about this, that the Lord is, is present to help us. Now, we come to Nehemiah 6. I'm going to quickly cover the 16 verses that I have in your handout. Pretty extensive piece, but I felt it's important for us to finish this. What I want us to be watching for is the final attempt of Nehemiah's opponents, those who were opposing the building of these walls, 
the final attempts that were made to stop the project right when it was on the verge of completion. Three significant movements occur. Let's watch what happens. And then we're going to apply it and kind of learn from it and wrestle with it a little bit. Now, Nehemiah writes, Now it happened that when Sambalat, Tobiah, and Gisham the Arab, and the rest of the en our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sambalat, and we've talked a lot about these men, so I'm not going to go back in the details of the opponents. So just kind of read it through. Sambalat and Gisham sent to me saying this, Come, we would like to meet with you. We'd like to meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. And... Um, that was their way of saying they were trying to make one last effort to stop the project from being completed. And their sense was they said something that sounded very innocuous. You know, we just want to talk. We just want to meet with you. What's the problem with that? And Nehemiah said at the bottom of that verse, verse 2, uh, that they actually intended, he goes, I knew this. They, they wanted to do me harm. There, it was a ruse. The only reason why they were inviting me to meet with them was to, one, get me to stop doing the project and hopefully try to finish us from doing it by taking me out. So I told them no. Look what he says. So I sent back messengers to them saying, you know, I, <laughs> thank you for the invitation. I'm doing a great work. You know, I just can't come down and meet you. I'm too focused on this project. And why should I let this work cease and pull away from it while I leave it and then go down and speak with you? Then he says this, though. They didn't take no for an answer. He says what they decided to do was four times. He says, look at that, in fourth verse. But they sent me this message four times. Not once, not twice, not three times, four times they sent me this message. And each time they asked me to come and meet with them. And each time I told them, you know what, I can't do it. Sorry. And I knew each time that they, it was because they wanted to get me alone and kill me. So essentially do me harm. And so then he says they decided to take a different um, tack. They, they had another ploy that they used. He describes it in verse 5. After their four attempts to try to get Nehemiah to respond to what seemed to be a reasonable request failed, they then decided to take it public. And one of the things we're going to notice here in the fifth verse, it says, Then Sambalat said his servant to, to me as before this fifth time, but this time he sent him with an open letter in his hand. An open letter is a, a public letter. It was designed to be read in front of the people in a public place. The intent of that letter was to publicly put Nehemiah in a position where he had to either sort of uh, acquiesce to their request or possibly create doubt that their accusations were legitimate. And so they were attempting to really put him in an awkward position. Look what they, look what they did. It says they sent this letter, and then they had it read in front of all the people. It has been reported... Among the nations, and Geshem says, that, that you and the, there, there were Jews that were working with Nehemiah plan to rebel, that, that the real issue here is a desire to rebel against the king, the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, who had actually sent Nehemiah, and Nehemiah had been working as his representative. What, what they say is, there's a rumor, we can't verify this rumor, but it concerns us, uh, that, that what is in actuality happening right here is that Nehemiah, you have another intention right now, and that, that intention is to actually acquire power so that really you're using the people. Now, that's just a rumor. We haven't, you know, but, but look what he says. And then we also have heard that, verse 7, that you've appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah. Uh, in other words, that you somehow have also manipulated certain people to prophesy in the name of the Lord that you are God's anointed king for this new, new uh, kind of 
revolution that you have planned on leading. In other words, you've been deceiving the people as to your true intent, Nehemiah. Now, we're not sure if those rumors are true or not. We're inviting you to come and meet with us to clear your name before we have to report this to the king. Will you come and do that? And Nehemiah, of course, he can read through this, but it did have an effect of kind of, you know what it does? It plays into that perception that people who are in authority, that all of them are corrupt. And, in, and, and, and by, parenthetically, so much of what we're bombarded with on a regular basis is continually exposing the flaws of people. It's almost become, just for where we are as a people in our culture, in our world, it's almost just assumed that you can't trust people. They've always got some secret thing in their closet, some ulterior motive. Some, and, and again, we see these things exposed, and it really, it really sometimes breaks down our ability to trust. And they're playing into that same perception with Nehemiah. They're trying to create doubt that he is who he says he is. He actually has another motive. And, of course, Nehemiah is incensed. He says, but I, I sent back to them saying, no such thing as you say are being done. You're just making this up. You invent them in your own heart, and then you're trying to spread this false innuendo. Listen, they all, and Nehemiah then tells us, he says, they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, their hands will be weakened in the work because they're going to start to be divided and wonder if Nehemiah is trying to manipulate them. And maybe it will stop the work. And, he, and then Nehemiah says, but it will not be done. All right? Um, that's not, and, and they were hoping that it would be done. And Nehemiah is saying, oh, God, strengthen my hands. Right? Help me to hold on tightly. They want to weaken our hands. They want us to stop this work. I'm asking you to help me finish it. Help me complete it. Strengthen my grip. Then look at this. Maybe the most subtle and the final attempt to stop the wall as it's at the point of completion, it comes through a supposed friend. And what had happened was they had been able to find somebody on the inside who they were hoping could, could create enough panic in the heart of Nehemiah that he would do something reckless in his fear, step across lines, and be revealed as a hypocrite and cause the people to lose confidence in him. Watch what happens. It says, afterwards I came to the house of Shemaiah. And uh, he, I didn't know it at the time Nehemiah writes, but he was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Nehemiah, I need to tell you, there's a plot against you right now. There's going to be a plan uh, to have you killed tonight. What, what I suggest we do is that we go to the temple and we hide out in the temple. We can do that together Basically, he says, but I think it's the safest place for you. Now, you got to understand, in the book of Numbers, it was clear that nobody but priests were allowed to go in the place that, that Shemaiah was suggesting Nehemiah goes. So what he was suggesting was that in your, in, for, to safeguard your, your life, the safest place that I know of is the temple. What I think you should do is you should hide out there. That's what we should do. And then you'll be safe. And Nehemiah says that should such a man as I flee, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later, and who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save it? Are you serious? The, the idea is that if we can get Nehemiah to step across a boundary and show the people that he himself didn't have a regard for the principles of God just because he was afraid that it would send out the message to everybody else that this is somebody who, when it really comes down to it, he doesn't really live by what he preaches and what he's been telling all of us to do. And so Nehemiah says, that is not how I make my decisions. He says, and then as I was talking to him, I perceived that God had not sent him at all to me, that no true friend was he. Look at this. 
He said that all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. The more I talked to him, the more I realized he was just trying to get me to do something in my fear that would cause me to, to um, have the people's confidence in my ability to lead undermined at this critical moment when we were nearing completion. And he says this, for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and then sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me with in front of everybody. He says, you know what, my God, I pray that you would remember Tobiah and Sambalath according to their works and the prophetess Nodiah, he writes, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. And then he makes the statement, look at it. He says, so the wall was finished. We just kept right on. The wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul. That would be the month of, that corresponds to our August and September. In 52 days, we finished it. And we did it with such, such, uh, comp- uh, how do we say, so quickly that our enemies were extremely frustrated and essentially lost heart completely. Look what he says. And it happened when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened. They lost confidence that they could stop it. Now that it was done before their eyes, they realized it was futile to try to fight us over the issue. And he says, for they perceived that this work was done by our God, that God was with us. And so that, again, we got to remember, it had been 140 years nearly that that wall around Jerusalem had been in shambles. And now in 52 days, what generations had accepted as a status quo was now reversed and a completion of a significant thing that was going to have blessing for the generations had been accomplished. I mean, I'm telling you, it was an amazing development. Now, there are lessons for you and me. And as we head into this final part of our year, I want us to think about it. Because fear is a real thing. And a lot of times, we too are tempted to be foolish or reckless out of our fears or to give up or to lose hope. We're going to talk about this for a moment. Let me just put a couple things on the board here. First one, and this has to do with the way in which Nehemiah responds to the enemies and their attempts to manipulate them. First one has to do with the value of what I'm going to call a sturdy resolve, especially when it comes to being drawn off course when we are on a good path, okay? So I'm going to call that the value of mm, a, a holy stubbornness, if you will. There is such a thing as being resolute and refusing to get off course. And a lot of times we're making, pro- you know, Nehemiah was making real progress. He could tell that really their real, their, what they really wanted to do was get him to stop what he was doing because it was momentum was building and they were so close. And they wanted to get him to stop what he was doing and get into a vulnerable place. And I, and I think, and, and then, even though, and Nehemiah basically said, you know, I'm not going to talk with you. They said, well, come on, what's the big deal? We just want to meet. We just want to talk. There's, that's very reasonable. And, and even though Nehemiah, it made him look like a, a less than gracious man, he said, you know, I can't do it. Not going to do it. We just want to talk. I know, but I, don't, I, I can't do it. Four times that happens, right? I'm still not going to do it. And I'm going to suggest that as, as when it comes to building our own lives with God, there are going to be times when we also need to stubbornly, if I can put it this way, stubbornly resist being drawn off course, particularly when into, in, into a vulnerable place. Let's be careful, loved ones, not to place ourselves and to wander into places where harm can come to us at a spiritual level. 
We need to be, we need to be thoughtful and careful in the way in which we, just, just because some doors swing open doesn't mean we're supposed to walk through them. Not every door that swings open is meant to be walked through. There are some times where there's such a, a good, growing pathway of progress, a building, if you will, that is taking place in our lives that even sometimes a good thing can actually become a distraction to us. If the larger thing that's happening in our life at a spiritual level, which is going to affect our relationships, no question about it, that that, that is something that we should just not quickly disengage from or undermine its value. Don't just make decisions on the basis of money or possessions. And that's good medicine for all of us in a society that is consumed with image. All of us live in that reality. Let us also hear the wisdom of the Lord. It's what we heard in the video as well. That is not, some, it's not the most important thing when it's all said and done. That there are some times where it may be a good option, but it will hurt us badly spiritually. I'm not sure that's the way to go. It might have a, a tremendous possibility here, but it could really be toxic for the critical relationships in my life. Is that worth it? Nehemiah, they say, come on, we just want to talk. He says, you know what? This is going to harm me if I do this. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Secondly, we're not far behind it. This one, you're going to look at it, and we're going to go, oh, it doesn't seem too flashy, but it's so important. And as this, it's the value of safeguarding unity when we're dealing with false insinuation. Now, now again, let me try to explain this one, because obviously from Nehemiah's standpoint, they're trying to say, you aren't who you say you are. Now, that's the rumor. We hear what you're doing. And everybody, you need to be aware that this Nehemiah guy, he's kind of just possibly interested in using you. Now, they, now you got to understand, so much of what they accomplished was because of their unity. What had ha- the reason they were able to prevail and get to where they were was because every, all, there were like different people groups from different socioeconomic levels all coming together in a spirit of common love for God and one another. And they were building something uh, that was produced. It was like they listened to Nehemiah and they worked together. And all of a sudden, there's breakthrough. Breakthrough's coming. And of course, one of the, that, a lot of that had to do with the unity that they shared. So it, it makes total sense, right, that the way to go about undermining that progress would be to sort of cast some kind of doubts in that would hopefully divide them and begin to have them lose confidence in their ability to trust, in this case, their leader, Nehemiah. And it was, so it was a very clever way of trying to create dissension because as we understand, there is a power in unity. Listen, there was a moment in the ministry of Jesus where he was on the verge of the cross. He's um, well aware of what's coming. He has his team together, and uh, that's what I call the, the disciples, his team, and he has them together, and he realizes that there's, there's, there's already, here he is on the verge, and there, there's so much division. Uh, one, of his, one of his guys has already betrayed him. He's left. He's been faking it, and he's, he's already gone. Judas is left. There's this moment, though, before where 
on the, during the, the Last Supper, right in, that peri- right in that period before the garden, where Jesus is watching what's happening with his guys, and then what's happening is they start arguing with each other as to who's the greatest among them. Remember this? And then each one of them decides they want the seat and preeminence, and there's this, there's this really, it just, it was awful. And at such a critical moment in the ministry of Jesus, to have them turning on one another with, with a, just the complete lack of humility that had characterized so much of what he had taught them. And here he is in these closing minutes watching them fight with one another over who gets the highest place of honor. And, that, and you know what he did there? He got down, and when no one was watching, that's when he gives them that great lesson that is unforgettable. While they're arguing about who is the greatest, he takes off and girds himself with a towel and gets down on his knees and feet and takes the basin and becomes the servant and starts to wash their dirty feet. And all of a sudden, that argument settles down into this stunned silence as he who was the greatest is now functioning as the servant. And he says to them that he who is the greatest be the servant. I am showing you something to remind you that this is not how I want you to be. And that spirit of pride and competition and that was penetrating into his small group at this significant time was something that he was concerned about because in his prayer around that moment, he makes this prayer. And it's recorded in John 17. It's just a piece of it, but it's profound. I want to put it up. He says this, I'm praying for you. He says, I'm praying not only for Lord Father, for these disciples. I pray for them, Lord. But I'm also praying for those who will ever, think about this, all those who are ever going to believe in me through their message. And truly, that means right there he's praying for you and me. It's like he shoots through the arrow through time. This prayer shoots through time. Right out there. He says, not only do I pray for them right now, Father, but I am praying for every single person who will believe on me because of the message they will bring. And I pray for them. And this is my prayer for them, Lord, that they would be one even as you and I are one. It was a powerful prayer. And it, it was, it, for when it happens, it's even more profound. Because he was saying, safeguard their unity. He could see it already, that the message, the effectiveness of the message moving forward will be connected to the unity and their willingness to work past things in the spirit of love. May they be one, even as you and I are one. Now, the church has struggled with this through the ages, but I will tell you that every time you see a a body of believers flourishing, it's partly because there's a spirit of unity in the power of love that binds people together. One of the key things here is that, that Nehemiah was addressing in his own response was he could tell what the enemy was trying to do was to destroy, destroy their unity. Can, and can you hear me when I say it, put it this way, as followers of Jesus, just as followers of Jesus, one of the primary ways we grow strong and build a healthy life in God is in community. It's, it, it's just part of the way God set it up. It's not just a personal, it is a personal relationship and it has a personal component, but there are aspects of my life in God that could only flourish with one another. 
It, it's in community. That's why we always talk about the power of a small group. That's why what she was sharing in that piece earlier was also powerful because it's like life shared together where we challenge one another to follow Christ. We pray for one another. We confess to one another. We pray that we may be healed and get better. We can be honest and real and not settle for the lowest common denominator, but work to improve and get break to build something of health and life in the vulnerable places. It's everything that we're committed. You know, the community is so, so important. It's an essential piece. And that's why when there is healthy church community, when you can think of it this way, where leadership and people are working together, not perfectly, but when we're all working together in a spirit of the love of Christ, there is a power of life that starts to flow out. And listen to me, it doesn't just affect the church as a whole. It flows into every family, and it begins to find its way into relationships and into our own heart as well. And then out to other people. That the life of God begins to challenge things. And all of a sudden, you're seeing a whole lot of life flowing where there has been devastation, where there has been shame, where there has been rubble. You see things now slowly being built up to points of health where blessing that wasn't possible before is all of a sudden becoming possible because areas that were always vulnerable are now becoming stronger. This is the way of the Lord. And again, it's a tremendous reminder. That is why we need, we need to pray for our, our leaders and we need to pray also uh, so that we would all safeguard the spirit of unity because it is a gift. And it's not about being naive. It's just about being, having a spirit of love that says, I'm not going to give in to negativity and the complaining. I'm going to help be part of something. We're all going to work together to do something beautiful for Jesus. We're going to try to do our best. Nobody's pretending here to be perfect, but we all want to seek to do what he's calling us to do. And that leads me perfectly into this third piece, and it's the last one I'll share, and it is this, that it also reminds us of the value of, of staying committed to first principles. And you, listen to me what I'm saying here. Uh, Nehemiah, they say, Shemaiah says, you need to take care of yourself. You, do you understand? They're about to come at you. Nehemiah says, uh, <laughs> Listen, are you asking me to go do something reckless because of my fear? I won't do it. And you know when he says, should such a man as I flee, it's not like he's the, the mighty warrior. Should such a man as I flee. That is not what Nehemiah is. What he is saying is this. Should someone who has made a commitment to live for God choose to do such an unworthy thing and bring shame to him? I will not do such a thing. This is not the kind of man that I am or want to be. I will not allow my fear to push me into reckless behavior that will undermine the integrity that I'm seeking to implement in my life as one who is, is wanting to help other people come to follow the ways of God. I won't do it. That is not, should such a man as I allow fear and foolishness to drive me in a direction that can produce nothing. He commits himself to first principles. And I was thinking about it. It's such a brilliant answer. But listen, there are going to be times where you and I are going to have to look past our fears and we're going to have to look past even our desperate desires and dig deep into our heart. We're going to have to ask the question, even when a part of us wants to run, part of us wants to indulge with recklessness, drop back into old stuff, step across lines in our panic or in our fatigue, we need to say, should such a man as I, should such a woman as I quit on what I've committed my heart to with God 
Should I step across that line do something so full? That's not the kind of person God has made me to be in Christ. And I will not live that way. I choose a different way to live, my friend. That's what he says. And it's a reminder that, and you know what? I don't know. Maybe some of us right now, we're on the verge of doing something reckless. And the Lord would say to you, should such a man as you, should such a woman as you? No. No, 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 no. Do not act out of the base as one called and one loved. We don't get it right all the time. We stumble, we fall. Yes, we get tired, we get weary, we get frustrated. Sometimes we lose our hope. But do not give up. And you know what Nehemiah says? He says, oh, Lord, will you strengthen my hand? Lord, by your grace, give me a good grip. I will not give up. I will not quit. And you know what that also reminds us of? Of the power of one life seeking to live well. He was just a man. But you know what he did? He had a burden. That burden broke his heart for his people who were broken and vulnerable. It made him take a journey. On that journey, he came to, to the city of Jerusalem and he committed himself to helping them build a wall. And out of that built wall came a blessing. And from that blessing came a new generation of possibilities, all because of one person willing to honor a burden with as much integrity as he could muster to try to do what is right in God's eyes. So it will be for you and me. Who can say all the good that is going to come because of choices made to honor God with our lives as a people who are building something for him and not simply conceding, well, that's the way it's always been. That's the way my family, that's the way I was raised. Or that's the way the culture is doing it, so I'm just going to join in. No! Should such a man as I, should such a woman as I, there are going to be times when we're going to have to hold the line. That's what I'm saying. You're going to have to hold it. Stay. Honor God. Run, hold when our fear is saying, get out of here. Hold the line. Trust the Lord. Keep building. Good things are happening. God is with us. Those are not just things to be said lightly. I believe them. The Lord does good things. He's got a track record of transformation all around us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your amazing grace that you are the one who builds lives. You still do it. And in so many ways this season reminds us that we don't need to be afraid of you. You came to us when we had nothing to give. You still do. And you want, to, you want us to embrace you in your humility. And uh, that's what you also, Lord, will do for us. You embrace us too. And um, it's just a it's just a exchange of humility, where we get to have you, and we don't deserve you, but your grace comes like a gift. And I pray that it would continue to work in our lives. Lord, we confess to you that we don't get it right all the time. A lot of us are struggling with things. A lot of us have like we've got real wounds. That's okay. Um, there's challenges. There's parts of us that want to run away, do foolish things, be destructive, quit when, you, when we know you're telling us not to. And I pray that you let courage rise up within us. Courage rise up within us, Lord, to hold, to trust, to build, to believe that you are able to bring good. And I am convinced good will come. I've watched it happen. I believe it. Help us. Help. I pray that you would help us all, Lord, to, to be wise builders and to remember what's most important, and to be patient with the process of what you're trying to do in our lives, and not to let fear drive us into foolish reactions that end up costing us when you had a better path for us. Teach us your ways. Pray for your grace. I pray for your blessing. I'm looking forward to this coming month, Lord. 
Bless our closing time, our time of giving. Bless our time of, of closing song in all these things. Lord, let us not be a hurry in, in a hurry in our spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, God.